all the latest business news from WA. Mark My Words, your weekly news briefing. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Poundle and I'm joined by Mark Byer. Coming up in this podcast, Roger Cook Agenda, Coal Power, Domgas, Apartment Projects, Art Sector, Small Business, Franchises and Marine Parks. Well, first up, Mark, new Premier Roger Cook made his first big speech since becoming Premier. What did he have to say? Yeah, there were quite a few strands to his presentation during the week. As you say, wanting to map out his vision for the state. Um, No really big surprises there, uh, but he certainly highlighted the areas that he wants to emphasise. Big themes are all around battery metals, downstream processing and green industry. So building on themes that we've been talking about for quite a while. Um, you know, talked a lot about lithium, rare earths. Uh, that's an area that's getting a lot of investment in Western Australia and keen to sort of accentuate that opportunity. Uh, talked a lot about you know this perennial theme that we don't do much downstream processing of our resources. And he says, you know, we've, we've missed the chance in the past. We don't want to do it again. Um, and then talked about this opportunity for Western Australia to be a global renewables hub. Mm. Um, so all very catchy phrases and nice broad themes. I guess the more interesting bit is, okay, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. How are we going to get there? He didn't have a lot to say there, but I'll touch on a few things that he did talk about. Um, he talked about fact that just a few weeks ago the government gave grants to about 40 different projects um, and he talks about... That was $138 million or something like that, wasn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there was a nice little quote here, he said, there's no shortage of ideas and there's plenty of wheels in motion, mm. but I'm not quite sure how much traction those wheels are getting. You know, we've seen over many, many years um, lots of promising, interesting, innovative ideas emerge. Yeah. Very few of them turn into something of substance, you know, real job creators. Yeah, I mean, I know that list quite well. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting companies on there. There's some that I'd never heard of, and there's some that we know quite well, uh, you know, and, and, and a broad range of sectors, you know, from medicine and, and pharmaceuticals through to, you know, other forms of tech and manufacturing and the like. Um, but you know, does I worry that when when governments decide right, we've got to spend money on something, that in the end maybe uh, I, I shouldn't say the due diligence isn't done. It's more that you know someone fear, someone you know potentially in the bureaucracy feels that the money just ha- they've got the money they've got to spend it, and uh, you know it's not their money as we know. And I get that they want to inject. Uh, funds into these areas, give these companies a boost, give these sectors a boost and inject confidence into the, the economy but, and create diversification of the economy. It's all very good, but it's a lot of money. And, uh, you know, I think you and I would say 20 years ago, $150 million nearly would have been an enormous sum of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these days, don't even know, it hardly makes the news. So there were two other specific things that he mentioned, but again not entirely convincing to me. Uh, One of them, an energy transition summit. So we get everyone together in a room and we'll all talk about the energy transition. Mm. Um, So it's something that a a politician announces 
when they want to be seen as doing something. Yes. But unless you've got a clear agenda, unless you've got a, a substantive plan behind it, it just becomes a talk fest. So the challenge there is to make it more than that. Yeah. And I personally remain to be convinced. Uh, we're going to talk a bit more about renewable energy in this podcast. but yeah. and, and then the other one that he talked about, this rather curious idea of a Western Australian hub in Canberra, um, immediately dubbed an embassy. Not a phrase he wanted to use, yeah. um, but that's become the... the um, the humorous phrase that people have talked about. Uh, this idea that we'll have a rotating roster of government ministers, bureaucrats, industry groups rolling through Canberra to remind everybody about how important Western Australia is. Um, quote, We need a concerted effort to remind Canberra that we're the engine room of the nation's economy. Now, there's lots of very good numbers to substantiate that, but I can also imagine lots of people on the East Coast yawning when they hear someone from Western Australia spruiking that line again. Yeah, and look, I think sometimes that line is more politically more for people in Western Australia than over there. I think I'm not 100% against this. I go, you know, those sort of missions, you know, we are ignored. We are left out. We are you know, sometimes not considered important enough because we just don't have people on the ground there. Um, we're not easily reached and people can't from the east can't be bothered getting over here often enough. So sometimes you have to, you know, call it an embassy, call it what you want, a trade mission. You know, we have one in London. You'd almost think Canberra's more valid, to be honest. And you match that up with the federal politicians that represent WA there and then it becomes, a you know, kind of more concerted and powerful kind of thing. So... You know, in terms of, uh, you know, it does cost money and it's, uh, you know, you don't want to be wasteful, but I'm not entirely against that concept personally, um, uh, you know, and I'm not 100% across the detail, but I thought it sounded like, you know, re I think he's got other things to get shot down more for than that one. And on well, the summit thing, Mark, I think, how do you get an agenda in the summit? I like these, the, in the international summits, they often, you know, there's a lot of bargaining going on in the background before those summits even occur and they usually have a plan to get something solid some solid announcement or announcements that comes out of it when you see these more uh we'll call them domestic summits and we've seen them nationally i've never seen that i've just seen you know kind of like you call it a talk fest and then not much so uh, it'll be interesting to see if they can turn, you know, get get a, get a proper kind of signature agenda out of it. I'd be I'd be impressed if they can. Well, the one that many people keep on talking about was the summit that Bob Hawke hosted in what eighty three or eighty four after he won power in Canberra. Yeah. And as you say, there was a clear agenda there, and that summit actually built on a lot of work that had already been done to underpin reforms that his government subsequently introduced. Right. It wasn't about, what are we going to do? It was about, let's build agreement. And the most yeah. dramatic reforms probably this country had seen, has seen in, you know, if you look at it, pretty remarkable period, right? But that was very much the exception. Yes. Yeah, and I can name... In fact, I can't name some other summits, but I can kind of vaguely remember some other summits that some other Prime Ministers have had that I thought, what a waste of time. All right, moving on. Um, now, you mentioned there, well, we've got a couple of energy things. The closure of a major coal power station, uh, one at Muja, has been deferred after concerns about looming energy shortfalls. Well, look, this tells us 
we've gone from the the grand aspiration to the harsh reality of what's going on right now. So the Australian Energy Market Operator, that's the government agency that um, I guess administers or oversees the energy market in Western Australia, as well as the East Coast, they put out an annual annual um, review called Statement of Opportunities. And the key takeaway, there is, quote, an urgent need for investment in Western Australia's electricity system to meet forecast demand. Mm. Uh, so they're saying that by 2025, the market will need an extra 945 megawatts of capacity to meet the forecast demand. Which is what you'd call a rather large power station generally. Um, well, probably in, in WA this part, context, in this part probably of the world, two. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, two. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then they say, based on their projections, that that shortfall will grow to about 4,000 megawatts by 2030, early 2032. Uh, In response to that, Bill Johnson, Energy Minister, announced that the government was deferring the closure of one of the units down at Collie. uh, It's about 200 megawatts, um, the Mooja coal power station, um, by six months. Um, Basically, it means there's one more summer they'll get through. They were planning to close it around November, deferring it to April. So if we and, have a hot summer... And if I'm right, there's an election in March of that same period. Shane Love, um, or, or sorry, Steve Thomas from the Liberals pointed that out. Yeah. Yes, the, the, it'll be there just to make sure there are no blackouts during the election yeah. campaign. Yeah. Um, so that's one other factor here. Uh, look, there are lots of uh, layers to this issue here. Um Lots of assumptions that get built into these sorts of reports. And I suppose that the good part of it is that the shortfall stems from a growth in demand to primarily. Yep. So Bill Johnson's turning it into a positive. He's saying lots of industry wants to use lots of extra electricity, therefore we need to that supply needs to come into the market. Um they did also factor in, though, the fact that all the coal, government's coal-fired power stations will shut uh, by about 2030. Um, they've also assumed that the Blue Waters power station, which is privately owned, will also shut by about 2030. Mm. There's no commercial decisions there, but that's just a, a working assumption that AMO yeah. has made. There's no requirement for it to shut at this stage, is there? No, but given all the issues with the coal mining industry at Collie, um, and the cost pressures and the trend towards renewables, you know, that seems a, a reasonable assumption to make. On the demand side, the biggest shift in AEMO's uh, forecasts in the past year is they're talking about this trend for industry to electrify. And the single biggest thing is all the alumina refineries mm. want to shift away from fossil fuels, gas power, towards um, electricity coming from, ideally, renewables. Yes. Um, so that's the single biggest thing here, the alumina industry. Then layered on top of that, we've got these lithium refineries being built in WA. There are three under construction, um, a couple of them in the very early stages of commissioning. They use a lot of power. They want green power. Um, and then I also talk about hydrogen projects. And they're a bit curious about that because there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Green hydrogen by definition, will only be produced when there's green power to make them work. Yeah. Um, 
So you're not going to get those hydrogen projects until the renewables are built. Mm. But look, overall though, uh, the, the, the report makes it very clear that if we want all this new industry to happen, if we want to decarbonise, we've got to spend a lot of money getting a lot of new power sources up and running. Yeah, and that's... It's phenomenal, isn't it? And here we, here we, you know, you go back to what we were discussing before. We want to be taking advantage of this this uh, massive change globally around uh, electrification, which involves lithium, for instance, and battery critical minerals and everything. And yet, you actually need the power to do that. You know, it's it's you just can't ignore the fact that the transition requires traditional energy for some time in in the future, as Meg O'Neill said the other day when we had her on stage and I asked her, you know, can you see Woodside, you know, being in gas for, you know, in 30 years' time? Absolutely. You know, so there's, we're going to need it. I wish people would start to understand that and, and just kind of get it. We need to get it in our heads because you're making the point. This isn't like we're not sitting there statically just using the same amount of power and reducing the fossil fuel part and increasing the renewable part. We're actually on quite a steep up uplift in terms of power usage. So you, you're not just replacing like for like, you are actually got to add more, and that's quite a big problem mm-hmm. if we want to grow as an economy. Now, fortuitously, I've prepared a feature for the next edition of Business News magazine out on Monday focused on renewable energy projects in the southwest of WA because I've, I guess simply came from this question of where's all the new power going to come from? Who's out there? Now, I've got a list here of projects which are either under construction or a very high likelihood of proceeding. Collectively, they're going to bring about 800 megawatts of renewable power mm-hmm. into the market. Uh, now, that goes some way towards meeting that shortfall in 2025, um, but not all the way. Yep. Um, what was interesting to me, some of the names that are involved here. So there's been several local groups that have, I guess, incubated solar farms and wind farms, but then they all get to a point where they sell them to someone with the balance sheet muscle and the expertise to actually go out and develop them yep. and build them. So, for instance, uh, there's a big solar farm being built out at Cunderdon, uh, the owners of that is a company called Global Power Generation. It's jointly owned by uh, Natagy, which is a big Spanish utility, and the Kuwait Investment Office. Mm. Um, sovereign Wealth. Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, there's a wind farm being built down at Kojanup by Enel Green Power. They're a big Italian utility. Uh, Synergy, they're planning a wind farm out at Hyden called King Rocks. Uh, not quite underway yet, but we expect that'll happen fairly soon. A company called Tilt Renewables, they've got a big wind farm project just north of Perth. Um, another one out at Condinen, there's a wind farm planned out there. That was bought last year by Shell, um, their first renewables investment in WA. Mm. Um, and they've partnered with Foresight Group, so they're a big London-based fund manager. Uh, that transaction didn't really get much coverage at the time. So you've got some really serious sort of global um, investors and, and companies 
putting money into the market. Yeah. Uh, this was something Bill Johnson had a press conference yesterday to discuss all this. He expressed a lot of confidence that the private sector will respond to the opportunity and the investment will come. And Mark, I'm noting that a lot of that, what you're talking about there is in the, the south of the state and in farmland. Um, now, other parts of the country are getting all sorts of resistance from the farming community about this stuff. What's the experience in WA or are we still too early to know? Look, most of the wind farms we've got are up in the north around uh, Dan Darrigan, um, yep. where it's, um, you know... Where not, the trees not, are bent over sideways. Yes, and not many people. Yeah. Uh, this wind farm that's being built down at Kojanup, that attracted a lot of community opposition because uh, that's sort of, this, I guess, a, more people. It's prime farming land down there. Yeah. So I think you know, that was the first example we saw where there was real community concern um, other ones out in the wheat belt, where again it's fairly sparse population, but yeah, we are going to see a lot more of that, and that's something the industry is looking for guidance from yeah. from government. People talk about renewable energy zones. Well, the minute you define a zone, you're going to get all the locals, going, I imagine, yeah. saying, "Not in my backyard." It's like when you want to build a nuclear power plant somewhere. Um, and the other question is the transmission lines, Mark. Now that's another big issue. There's all sorts of discussion about renewable projects on the east coast but then the, the transmission lines a are uh, need to be built and that's a cost and b they're also an eyesore to many people what's the what's that discussion in wa well look again the the initial response from government is to upgrade or reinforce is the term they use the existing transmission network uh, which runs you know south to collie yep. north to geraldton east to the through the wheat belt That'll only keep us going for the next few years. There's some really big investment that's needed beyond that. So the policy challenges are clearly going to get more acute in coming years, mm. and we haven't really found an answer yet. Because as you're right, what, during the week, farmers in Victoria drove their tractors down the main street of Melbourne yeah. and caused chaos there because they don't want big transmission lines going across their farm. No, and they've, and they've teamed up with the conservationists. You know, I think it's the Brolga or something like that. You know, uh, it's the bird life that they're, you know, they're trying to uh, protect. And, you know, I, you know, is that a marriage of convenience, some might suggest. But anyway, uh, just always curious about how those things go. And I know WA is a bit different. You know, we're, a, we're a, as you say, more sparse, perhaps, you know, dare I say this, less scenic out in the wheat belt. Uh, and already the Swiss being what it is, as you suggest, already has quite a lot of those transmission lines already in place um, you know so it's not quite the same story interesting west to west group provides a diverse suite of service offerings across construction fit out and maintenance nationally with over 150 industry professionals our unique skill set enables us to provide our clients with a one-stop end-to-end solution that incorporates all stages of a project's delivery cycle at west to west our partnership culture drives excellence, building trust and strong client relationships. West to West Group, exceeding expectations. Discover more at westtowest.com.au. All right. Um, now, Mark, in the gas sector, the state government has reaffirmed its DOM gas policy. Yeah, so this was uh, quietly updated by the government during the week. Rather curious. They just put an update on their website rather than making an announcement. Uh, but essentially they've said that all onshore gas projects, and, and effectively we've talking about the Perth Basin here, uh, will in future 
have to sell all of their gas into the domestic market. Uh, now, certainly welcomed by local industry, uh, by the people that buy the gas, um, which include the likes of Alcoa, uh, some of the mining companies, uh, people like Coogee Chemicals. Right. So this uh, dovetails into the previous discussion about um, the power energy requirements of the future, right? That's right, yep. And look, and this has been one of the, the strengths of WA, that we've had this... Um, well, sorry, I'll, I'll go back a step. We've had a very good supply of gas into the domestic market. A lot of it comes from the LNG projects yep. because they need to reserve 15% of their gas for the domestic market and the rest can be exported as liquefied gas. Yep. Um, and then on top of that, in a, things in the Perth Basin um, onshore will come into the domestic market. Uh, famously, Mark McGowan, when he was Premier, made an exemption to that policy. So the Waitsea project currently being developed by Beach Energy, backed by Kerry Stokes and by Mitsui & Co., they were granted an, an exemption. So they're allowed to export most of their gas for the next few years mm. as LNG. And the other developers in the Perth Basin wanted the same opportunity. So we're talking about companies like Strike Energy, uh, Mineral Resources, um, Hancock Prospecting has big gas fields there. Um, they all talk about an opportunity in the domestic market, but they also want that choice or the option of exporting if they can get a better return there, yeah. and who wouldn't? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's always a real tension there. Uh, but the government came out and said, no more exemptions for Perth Basin, just for weights here. Nobody else gets that exemption. Yeah, and curious as to why there was even one when you think about it, but anyway. Um, and then sort of lay it over that, uh, that update came on the opening day of a parliamentary inquiry into the domestic gas market. Uh, this was something that uh, Peter Tinley, Labor MP, initiated. Uh, the interesting um, bit of information that came through from state government representatives was confirmation that at the moment not all ex ex gas producers, um, you know, the likes of Woodside and Chevron are the two big ones, they're not always meeting that 15% requirement. And this gets raised from time to time as a real gripe by local industry who are saying, hang on, you need to give us more gas to meet your 15% requirement. Mm. The key thing here is that that requirement is over the life of the project. So there was an acknowledgement that there's actually, they'll need to increase the rate of supply in future right. to get back to their 15%. So it's going to be interesting to see yeah. so that means how that pans that out. The last few years, it might be 30% of gas going to domestic market kind of thing. Just Hypothetically. To, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Because uh, there's a, a test here as well. It's, it's got to be commercial for them to mm. supply the domestic market. Clearly, at the moment, they'd be getting better returns exporting it as liquefied gas yeah. rather than selling it domestically. Mm. So I think that'll be a test for how firmly that policy gets enforced by governments in future. Yeah. And, of course, winding back to the earlier discussion, the more gas we get in the local market, that continues to be an attractive fuel source, which means all these hydrogen projects that people talk about, it gets harder and harder for them to stack up. Yes. Because you can just keep on buying cheap gas. Yeah, so that's true. Although you'll have all other sort of, you know... 
ESG requirements that may change that. All right, let's look at several apartment projects that are going ahead. Um, I mean, I'm just is it uh, is the sector turning? Because you've got you've talked we've got three here to talk about. Uh, yeah, well, look, so you know this, this follows. Picture. Yeah, I mean, uh, so Claire Tyrrell actually has a feature on apartment projects in the latest, well, the last edition of Business News. Yeah. Um, that actually talked about a bit, a bit of softness in mm. the market overall. Only two have gone ahead in the in the last year. Yeah, um, and yet the news this week: um, several big players coming into the market. Yeah, with some very significant developments. There you go. So it, it is turning, maybe. Maybe. Yep. <laughs> so what do, what do we got first, Mark? There's a Malaysian developer moving into Subi. Yeah. So a group called UEM Sunrise. Uh, they're half owned by a Malaysian wealth fund. So there's a, another theme coming through there. They've bought two lots at the western end of Subiaco Oval. So next door to Hayden Bunton Drive, what used to be the car park for the old Subiaco Football Club. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so that's probably the two largest lots around the old Subi Oval. And they've got some very substantial developments planned there. Uh, a 30-storey apartment tower and an 11-storey apartment tower. Uh, now... To my way of thinking, this is actually a good spot for high-rise development. Um, it's away from existing housing. Yep. Uh, there should be minimal, if any, issues with overshadowing. Yep. Uh, close to train stations, close to shops, uh, close to public open space. To me, it ticks all the boxes. Yep. Uh, now, this company has got very substantial experience um, in the Melbourne market, um, as well as their home market of Malaysia. Uh, I'll just mention this number, for anyone in Perth that freaks out about high-rise, uh, this company has built an 86-storey tower in Melbourne, which in fact is the largest tower in that city, I'm told. Is that right? Or the tallest. Yeah, right. Um, hard to imagine that in Perth. Yeah. Um, but they've, got, they've done three very big developments um, in Melbourne, so they've got a lot of experience here. This is their first investment in Western Australia. Okay. Um, and part of that whole Subi East precinct, so the old Subiaco Oval, the old Princess Margaret Hospital site. Yes. Well, um, this sort of sits in the middle of it, doesn't it? The, well, sorry. Well, it'd be more uh, the west. The end. west end of that precinct, but right in the middle between the, the the yeah the the uh, Thomas Road part of it, which is where the hospital was, right through to Subi Centro, which is obviously you know an old development by those standards now, but you know was you know still relatively recent. Yeah, and across that whole precinct, the government's talking about 2,700 new dwellings. Yeah, right. Um, a lot of that up at the old hospital site, but also around the Oval. Um, and then this one makes a pretty substantial contribution to it, 430 dwellings in these two towers. So, yeah, over time, that's going to be a really significant development. Hmm. And I think people have also learnt from the old Subi Centro development, adjacent to Subiaco train station, I think a lot of people have looked at that and said, wow, if we did it again, we should have gone taller. Yeah. Because pretty much everything there is, what, three, maybe four storeys. Um, that's you know, a prime spot for more high-rise. Yes. And also interesting to hear the commentary from the Malaysian group, UEM Sunrise. They said they've been looking at investing in Perth for some time. They talked about the strong uh, economic fundamentals here, uh, the lower entry point for housing i.e. it's more affordable, um, and they talk about good prospect for capital gains in the Perth market compared to the rest of Australia. Okay. So they're clearly uh, very bullish 
All right, good to see. Now, you've also got uh, a development in West Perth. Yeah, and look, some really interesting names involved in this one. The company is APPL Group. Now, that's led by Michelle Prater. Now, her dad was Vern Wheatley. Granddad was Sid Wheatley, yep. founders of what became Automotive a- Holdings a- a- Group. AHG, yeah. Yeah. Um, subsequently bought by AP Eagers, yes. the Brisbane company, so I think the biggest car dealership in the country. And Michelle Prater, incidentally, is still a director of AP Eagers. And so their family business actually owns a lot of the land on which the car yards operate. Mm. That was sort of the business model. Um, and three years ago, uh, they, in fact, APPL, sold three very substantial properties in Osborne Park for about $30 million. So they're well and truly cashed up yep. and then got potential to develop what used to be the old City Motors car yard. Ah, oh, of course, yep. Which, in fact, was one of the first car yards that Sid Wheatley ever owned hmm. or, or opened. And reflecting that, the project is being called the Sydney Charles Quarter. So Sydney for uh, Sid Wheatley. SID. And Charles for Charles Street. Um, so that's t- on the corner, that's on the freeway entrance there, effectively. That's right, yeah. 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 On, the, on the the northern side of the freeway, where which splits West Perth in two. Yep, yep. yep. Okay. And again, another prime, a large inner city block of land that's been sitting there you know, barely used for years since yep. the car yard shut down. So, again, a reminder of there are lots of opportunities for very substantial infill. But, look, overall, they're looking to invest a bit over $100 million. Uh, it'll go up to seven storeys, a mix of um, housing options, um, including some build-to-rent and some commercials, some shops and gyms. Um, so they're looking at building a, well, they're calling it an urban village, We'll see how it goes with that development. Mm. Okay, interesting. And then finally, Mark Serona uh, has a plan for Fremantle. Yep, and look, again, some interesting names involved with this development. Um, So Serona Urban, that was the group that did that big development in uh, central Frio, um, around sort of the council offices and around the old church there. Uh, They've got a site where they're planning to build about a $100 million apartment development. The site that had been earmarked for a double tree by Hilton Hotel, uh, that never got off the ground. Uh, the site was bought by Leonie Baldock, um, part of the, what, the yeah. Bennett family? Yeah, well, part of the Wright family. Sorry, I beg your pardon? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So the granddaughter of Peter Wright and the daughter of Michael Wright, one of his two daughters. Yep. yep. Um, so well, very well, one well, of his two, the two inheritors of his fortune. Yeah, we should so, say so. A very well-heeled family. Yep. Um, and and that's a name we've we've heard Leonie Bordock's name come up a few times. Getting more involved in the property sector. Yes. Um, and she, in fact, I think we understand she's her family is a big investor in Serona. Yes. Um, so that group, uh, led by Matt McNeely, will be the developer of this project. And it's in an area where there's quite a lot going on. So Hesperia, uh, just Adrian Finney's company, uh, they developed the old Elders Wool Stores site, or they've acquired that site. Um, I lose track of which ones are actually underway at the moment. Uh, but also Gerard O'Brien's company Silverleaf, they did a shopping centre redevelopment on the, uh, the 
the um, the mall in Fremantle. So, yeah, another encouraging sign for Fremantle that more development happening there. Yeah, brilliant. All right, Mark. Well, let's uh, just briefly preview the magazine coming out next week. Uh, we'll keep it nice and short. Uh, firstly, what has Liv de Klerk written about in the art sector? So, look, she's spoken to a whole range of people there about I guess, coming out of COVID and also about developing a longer-term strategy for the sector, something the government is working on. So she's spoken to a lot of the leading lights there and we've got our updated list of all the big arts organisations in WA. Great. And then Jack McGinn has looked at small business, including the franchise sector. Yeah, so he's done a couple of case studies on some small businesses, but also looked at um, the big franchise groups in the state. Uh, lots of data there. Uh, Jim's group, number one. Yeah. Uh, but also some of the big cleaning franchises, a lot of the fast food, takeaway food franchises there. So um, good insights into what's going on in franchising. Yep, big employer. And finally, uh, what's happening with the proposed marine park along the state's south coast? Well, there's a big barney going on down there. Mm. Fishing industry very concerned about uh, their resource being locked up um, and intrigued about the role of the the Pew Charitable Trust, uh, a very uh, a powerful and wealthy US organisation. Yeah, yeah, quite something going on there. So, uh, yeah, take a read of that. All right, Mark, thank you for that. Um, and to our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.